You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody, it is Friday, one of my favorite days of the entire week, and that is because I get released for roughly 48 hours until I have to be back again to uh, to the cubicle life, but I get a I get a chance to step away from that, spend some time with the family, focus on other things, and just really, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm looking forward to my nephew's first birthday party in a hotel swimming pool. That is what we're doing this weekend, and I'm going to cannonball the shit out of that pool until someone tells me, sir, you're splashing too much water outside the pool. That's my goal, anyway, Uh, and I'm going to totally dominate that birthday party to the point where my brother may come up to me and go, dude, settle down. That's the goal. That's the goal, and stuff my face with probably free pizza. If I had to guess, they're probably going to order some pizza, so that's my plan for the weekend. Um hunting season in Iowa is closing shortly so uh, the the late season plans uh, I'm gonna start once that once that shotgun season ends I'm gonna start doing some late season scouting and uh, and then maybe set up on something my my hope is I can find a good food source uh, or I can find um, you know a, a good travel route between a food source uh, potential food source and bedding and the only other thing I I hope is that it snows a lot and what that does is you know the trails makes the trails more noticeable where these deer are uh, coming and going I can look at the tracks and say hey that's a that's a big deer and uh, I could potentially set up on it so 
that's the goal for late season. Nothing too outside of the box there. Um, you know, get trail cameras up and uh, maybe take a little inventory of what uh, made it through the shotgun season. Other than that, nothing huge planned. Now, today we have a returning guest. Uh, we call him Dr. Mike. Mike, uh, and he typically does product reviews, product comparisons for us on the podcast here. But today, he is going to do a hunter profile podcast and he actually has shot two really good deer for Maryland this year and uh, he's going to walk us through where he hunts how he hunts and uh, he got one with a bow and one with a gun so uh, that's what today's podcast is about but before we get into today's podcast I know it's a dream of mine to head out west sometime and continue to hunt elk or mule deer or antelope or you know other western game and i know that for a lot of us i'm putting my the midwest into the same category as the east coast because we are so far away it's hard for us to get out there and scout so that is where an outfitter can come in and specifically big horn outfitters out of wyoming buffalo wyoming to be exact they're an outfitter for Western game and dude, they got, they do everything. Elk, mule deer, antelope, white tails, pronghorn, turkey, prairie dogs. And then they even do some uh, fishing trips as well. But, um, I know Dustin DeCrew, one of the owners of the company. If you are interested in booking uh, a Western big game hunt of any species, you guys need to reach out to uh, uh, Dustin DeCrew. Just look at his Instagram page and look at the success that he provides his clients. That is uh, amazing in itself. But check out Dustin DeCrew and his partner. And let's see what is his name. Rich Sweeney. And you can go to bighornoutfitters.com or you can email Dustin at Dustin at bighornoutfitters.com or give him a call at 307-620-0390 and uh, start planning for your uh, for your western hunt and tell him uh, old nasty nine fingers sent you. All right, let's get into today's podcast with Dr. Mike. All right, on the podcast again, we have Mr. Dr. Mike DiNapoli. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? I can't complain. You have been on this podcast multiple times, but on more of a gear-related podcast. I know you've done uh, a product review podcast for us, a couple products on there. You've done some uh, product comparison write-ups. You've done a couple product comparison um, uh, podcasts as well. But today, we are actually going to talk about you as a hunter and kind of do a hunter profile podcast on you because you have had one hell of a, a season so far this year. Yeah, this, this has been my best season I think I've ever had. That's awesome. And um, before we get into all the meat and potatoes, let's remind everybody, where do you live and what do you do for a living? So I, I live in uh, in uh, Westminster, Maryland, which is kind of probably northwest of Baltimore by about 45 miles. And I, I work in the emergency department. I'm a physician in a local emergency department here in Maryland. Okay. Now, 
I, I don't know how much information you can give me, but my mom uh, is an ER nurse. So she works second and third shifts at times. And she has some absolutely crazy stories, uh, you know, about the things that can go down in uh, an ER, especially at night. Now, with you being in probably a higher, you know, close to a big city, do you have any crazy, like, short stories that you could share with us about your experience in the ER recently? Uh, without without a doubt, I think your mom's right. Um, you can, I think anybody that's worked in an emergency department uh, probably has a, a long list of, of stories they can tell. Um, offhand, I can't really think of any that I could that I could actually share at this time. I would have to, to definitely give that some thought. But, um, you know, without a doubt, there's a, a lot of people talk about the moon and probably barometric pressure and whatnot. But it, it is crazy the way that we see multiple things come in, you know, together that you just wouldn't expect. I mean, there's times everybody's coming in with shortness of breath and that's kind of understandable if there's some, you know, asthma related pollen or something like that in the air. But there's other times when things are just completely, you know, baffling how, how you would get kind of the same type thing coming in when really there's, there's nothing you can put your finger on. And, um, at some point in the future, if you give me some time, I'll, I'll come up with something and, and we can discuss it a little bit, but uh, it's without a doubt, it's an interesting place. And, um, you know, I work as physicians, we often work different shifts. So there's times I'm working first thing in the morning, like six 30 and I'll work till late in the afternoon. Other times I may be going in late in the afternoon and working till early morning and then other times overnight. So, um, it always makes it kind of interesting to fit in family and, and hunting and things like that with, uh, with my, my kind of hectic schedule. Right. Right. And I, it is kind of weird because I have, uh, you know, friends who are doctors or friends that work swing shifts and they always try to plan their schedule, move stuff around. So they get the biggest possible window to hunt during the hunting season. Do you find yourself doing that as well? I, I try to do that. And, and, you know, I think I'm kind of lucky from that perspective because most people that don't hunt are more interested in getting, you know, Christmas off and, and summer vacation off. And for me, if you give me a, a good shot right at the end of October and beginning of November, I'm, I'm pretty happy. And this year I, I got really lucky. Um, even without asking for it, I think I ended up getting like eight days off at the beginning of November, like right in a row. Oh, nice. And that worked out uh, really well and, and kind of enabled me to get out and do some things. And I bet it helps with your, your like your paid time off as well. So uh, you can schedule, you know, you have maybe, two days off, then four days on and two days off or something, you know, something, something like that. And then you, you get a big chunk off, but you don't have to use that much PTO. Right. Right. Cool. Well, you live in Maryland, man. Tell us a little bit about the terrain in Maryland, where you hunt and the location within that state. Gotcha. So, you know, Maryland varies a lot. It, um, you know, from over by the Eastern shore, I think it tends to be much flatter, um, much more coastal. They've got a lot of crops and things over there. I, I have not done any hunting there, but I, I think they're supposed to have some of the biggest deer in the state or over in the, the by the Eastern shore. Uh, there's a lot of agriculture. And then as you move farther West, it, it tends to get more, uh, hilly, somewhat like small mountainish, I, I, I guess. 
um, as you get over towards West Virginia, then then you get into some much deeper mountains. And I live kind of in between that area. So the area where I am is, is mostly kind of um, uh, some rolling hill areas. Um, you know, it may go up or down a couple hundred feet, but but nothing too uh, too steep or too unusual. Um, you know, we're outside of, of Baltimore. I'm kind of in a triangle northwest of Baltimore and then almost straight up from Washington, D.C. in that area. And there's still a fair amount of farms and, and agriculture in this area. So, um, you know, they, they typically plant corn and some soybeans. And um, there's some uh, kind of like little creek bottoms that run through those areas that, that can't be uh, tilled that grow up and end up being, you know, some hedgerows with some, some trees in it. And then there's also still some patches of, uh, you know, undeveloped um, woods, which, you know, may have some houses break them up here and there or just maybe larger tracks or something. Um, but unfortunately, most of, you know, most of the, I think, larger pieces of properties are, are kind of slowly beginning to break apart and be developed. So it's kind of like there is in the rest of the country, you know, right. just the tracks of lands are kind of breaking up and I think it gets much harder to hunt and probably much more difficult for, for animals and things to get along and do their thing. Right. So how fast is that area becoming developed? I mean, there's places around where I, uh, where I live where I'll go a week or two without driving by them, and then I'll come back and they've got it bulldozed flat and a building up. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely kind of gone that way a little bit here because we're, we're somewhat in, in the bedroom for Baltimore and DC. So, um, you know, people will live out in this area to get, you know, uh, either more affordable housing or just uh, to, to get outside of, of the big city type environment and then actually drive in. So it was developing, I think, very quickly initially when I moved out here, um, when the, the housing boom started, that was probably around like 2008-ish or something. And then lately, it's kind of slowed off a little bit. So there's still some housing develops going up, but it's not nearly as much as it was when I first moved out in this area. Gotcha. So how many acres out there do you have access to hunt? So I have, um, you know, 14 acres of of my own. And then, um, you know, most of my neighbors allow me to hunt on their property, too. So. Uh, there's a, a couple of smaller tracks that are uh, about 15 and 20, and then there's some some larger tracks too that are in the uh, 200 range that you know are directly kind of around my area. But most of those uh, properties, um, you know, other people are allowed to hunt too. So that you know, presents a little extra pressure on those areas. Right. So not only with you know your I'm envisioning kind of like uh, sub developments like uh, subdivisions with like tracks of timber and maybe some ag in between um you know and i'm i'm putting this into a perspective similar to what i see when i go out to the the western suburbs of chicago it's like there's development that's happening but there's still some un like some ag some undeveloped timber like you know basically blocks of timber that the only reason there's still a block of timber is because the guy who owns it hasn't met, got the price offer that he wants from a developer yet. There's, there's 
that's probably a pretty good estimate because um, I've done some hunting in Illinois before, and and there's a lot of this area that looks a little bit like that. My guess is um, probably there's probably 75% ag for the area around me, and and somewhere around 25 or maybe a little bit more as far as uh, wooded areas. And where where I am, I'm far enough out of town where the houses are fairly sporadic and spread a little bit apart. Um, there's some areas where there might be, you know, 50 yards from each other, but there's other areas where it might be, you know, three or 400 yards or more between houses. Um, but probably less than a mile down the road, there's big developments where you could literally throw a stone to your neighbor's house and there, yeah. there might be a hundred houses and, you know, a development or something. Um, where I live though, the, uh, most of the big properties next to me are being utilized for farming and, and agriculture and, um, um, kind of like fruit crops and things like that pretty well. And I, I don't expect any of that's going to be sold anytime soon. And that, that works out pretty well from on my behalf. Gotcha. So what's the, the deer population like in the area that you live? That, I, I that think you it's hunt, pretty, right. I think it's pretty reasonable, but there's, there's a, a, and I haven't done a deer survey to be honest with you. And I haven't really checked anything with the state but there's a, a pretty high amount of does. So my guess is the ratio um, has to be at least, you know, somewhere around four or five to, to one. Um, certainly on my property and just just kind of the things that I've seen either on my trail cameras or in person, that would be a, a pretty good estimate, probably about four or five to one. And um, there are a few big bucks here and there, but I think a lot of the, um, you know, m- my particular county out here actually allows rifle hunting. And then it's one of the few counties in Maryland that still allows that. So I think what happens is there's a lot of, um, you know, I guess average size bucks that get taken each year um, and, and really aren't allowed to get very big. Um, whereas a lot of the other areas that allow, um, you know, shotgun only or archery only, then I think those bucks are allowed to grow up a little bit, a little bit bigger. Right. Right. So how many years have you been hunting in that particular area? Um, I've been hunting here since 2000 and, uh, 2004. Okay. And have you seen, although, although I, although I have, although I have to admit that, that when I first moved out here, I did not hunt very much. So, um, I kind of was on a hiatus and I was, I was actually traveling more. So I was going out to Illinois and doing some hunting like that, but I really started hunting hard on my piece of property in the immediately surrounding area, probably only for the past three to four years. Gotcha. So, have, has there been a, a, a change in even in the last three to four years that you've noticed? I mean, has the herd gone down? Has it gone up? Have the quality of bucks gone up or down? Have you seen any type of trends? So the one big trend that, that I've seen is, um, you know, I started really managing my property probably over the past three years. And before then, I would just go out hunting on occasion, you know, like I said, I was, I was going more to, to Illinois and out of state and things like that. So for me, hunting here was just, you know, just kind of a way to get out of the house and into the woods and do something like that. But about three, three to four years ago, I was no longer traveling out of state. I was working and, you know, I had a family, so I was kind of staying at home more and I started doing a lot more work and I put in probably a couple of acres of food plots and, um, hinge cut, maybe a, a two acre area. And, Initially, when I did that, um, I started putting out some trail cameras and I would see some, you know, some, let's put it this way. I, 
I was getting excited if I saw like a, you know, a small six point, I was kind of excited because I really wasn't getting much be- before then. Um, you know, and I'm talking something certainly less than a hundred inches. I was initially pretty excited right. and on occasion I would get an eight point and that would, you know, really be great. And then I did the, the hinge cutting and everything. And since then, because I was actually going back looking over my pictures over the past couple of years where I was getting some organized and I really have seen a steady increase in the number of bucks and the quality of bucks. And, you know, I went from there to seeing, to regularly seeing um, some pretty decent eight points the next year um, to seeing some bigger eight points. Um, I rarely see anything bigger than that. Uh, This year I've got, um, I had one, two, three, three really nice eight points that would go probably 125 to maybe up to 150 on one of them. And, um, actually that's probably an exaggeration on the eight point, probably like 140 or something like that. Um, and then some really small 10 points, which surprised me. They look like very, very young deer, probably maybe two and a half years old and 10 points with, um, you know, um, tines probably no bigger than a couple of inches or maybe three inches. So I don't know what's going to happen with those. They definitely look young and I'm hoping that if they get, you know, older, um, they're going to continue that 10 point frame and just, just put in a lot of size and mass. Um, you know, only time's going to tell with that, but without a doubt, putting out the, um, you know, the food plots and then, uh, really giving the does a place to bed, uh, with the, um, with the hinge cut that has really changed things significantly. So, you know, when you think of the grand scheme of things, you, you own 14 acres and you, you do habitat work on 14 acres that's not a lot of ground. However, when you've done that, you said you've noticed more deer and better deer uh, on your property. Do you think that is that is a direct result of the the property management? I guess the the food plot and hinge cutting on your part, or do you think it's just a matter a matter of more deer are are surviving because other hunters aren't killing them. You know, it's, that's a good point. I think it's probably a little combination of both. Um, there's another property for mine and, and, you know, I probably should go talk to the people and, and I haven't yet, but I've noticed some QDMA, um, like signs posted on some of the trees that border their property, maybe a mile from here. So that property is about a hundred acres. Cause I know I looked at it in the past. And, you know, if they're managing it and then, like I said, there might be even be some other people in the area that are also doing it, whether or not it's posted, uh, that's certainly going to, going to kind of recruit some decent sized deer to the area. Um, I know one of the hunters that hunts some of the adjacent land, he also seems to be, you know, more interested in if he just wants, wants to get some deer meat or something, he'll shoot a doe. And otherwise if he shoots a buck, he's really going to hold off on a, on a decent sized buck too. So I think that there's some of that's working. Um, I think part of the issue is, is, you know, the orchard that's around my house. I think that, um, you know, they probably have some people that they allow to hunt there and they may want to clear off as many deer as they're possibly allowed to because the deer get in there and, and, you know, kind of, um, damage a lot of their crops and things like that. So, uh, they may, they may be shooting more or less. I really haven't talked to any of those hunters very much. And then on my piece of property, I've noticed that I have a resident population of does. I probably have two and they're probably between four and six does each. Um, I don't know how they're squeezing into the little piece of property, but they, they definitely are. 
and I can recognize them very well. And then as soon as the rut comes around, there's literally a high, there's a highway. There's kind of like a big path right in the center of my woods and that forms a highway and the bucks just go up and down that just kind of scent checking does, I think, um, just over and over through the course of, of the day. Yeah, that's good. So I, th- I think it's probably a combination of both. So that's good for you as far as tree stand locations are concerned. It, it, they take the path of least resistance, it sounds. Yeah, yeah. I definitely had to learn to hunt it this year because I think in the past I, I kind of invaded and went into the woods too much, and that was really kind of pushing some deer out of there and causing me some problems. And this year I have not gone into the woods at all, and I pretty much am just hunting the, the very outside edges and just trying to strategically place um stand so I can actually shoot towards those paths or towards openings. And that's really made a big, big difference. Okay. All right. So the work you've done, I mean, from, from, from your eyes, the work that you've done, adding these food plots and doing the hinge cutting from, from what you see more deer on your property as a direct result of that work. And that makes you happy. So my question is, has your, has your goal ever, uh, since you've done that changed as far as, cause I know you mentioned, you know, Hey, I got excited when I saw a, a you know, a, a under hundred inch six pointer. And now you, you said, you think, you know, you got trail camera pictures of a 140-inch eight-pointer, which is really good. So has the habitat work that you've done and the deer that are starting to frequent your property changed your goal as far as what you want to harvest every year? Uh, you know, yes yes and no. I think the the bottom line for me, and I've always kind of been this way, is, um, you know, for one, I just enjoy being out in the woods. So I just like going out, love seeing deer, whether it's a fawn or a doe or, you know, bucks, you know, great. Um, but even an owl or a woodpecker or whatever, for me, it's, it's just a blast being out there. Right. And my, my sole goal that I've always had since I started hunting when I was about 20 is if I'm going to shoot a buck, then it's got to be a buck I'm willing to mount. And if I'm not willing to mount it, then I'm just going to shoot a doe. And that served me pretty well to be to be honest with you and um you know i shot the two bucks this year i'm mounting both of those um you know i I, for me that's just um it kind of helps differentiate for me am i willing to spend that kind of money to mount a deer or is that something that really i want to pass on you know where does that fit in with my other deer is it bigger than my other deer is it smaller than my other deer does it fit in is there a story or something unique about that deer that makes me want to take it um, and otherwise I'm just going to take a doe. So, I mean, I've spent years and years at times, like five years without shooting a single buck. And, um, and then, like I said, this is the first year I've ever shot two bucks in one year. Um, so, so that's kind of how I've, I've gone through it, you know, pretty much since I started hunting. Right. Okay. So you killed two deer this year. Um, were these deer frequent frequenting your property throughout the summer months leading up to the um leading up to the season or did you have any previous history with these two deer yeah the um the one deer that i shot first that um that we called goofy horn i've seen him i think this is this was the third year that i've seen him and um each year he he always had a kind of a double or split um right main beam um, which made him kind of interesting and made it actually pretty easy to tell him apart from, from any other deer. So, 
Um, last year I saw, I don't know, I, I haven't counted through them, but my guess is I probably had 20 or 30 pictures. I actually just got done looking at his pictures for this year before we got on the phone and I actually had 62 pictures of him this year. And um, he was very regular. I saw him in velvet only once or twice in like end of June, beginning of July. And then he disappeared until I want to say it was about October 14th. And then from then on, he was a regular customer. And once he came on the property, a couple of the yard years that had been hanging out disappeared. So I think this was, you know, probably one of the more dominant bucks on the property. And the, the other deer that I shot, I may have had some pictures of him uh, last year or the year before. I'm going to have to look at him a little more closely, but I did get um, a lot of pictures of him at the end of June and beginning of July. I probably had about probably 20 pictures of him. And then he disappeared and I would see him on occasion. But after I shot Goofy Horn the first year, then he became very regular and I probably got another 30 or 40 pictures of him before I ended up taking him in the course of like, I shot the first year, November 4th and the second one, uh, December 5th. So in that one month period, I probably got an additional 30 pictures of him. You think that's because of you took out the dominant buck and this other buck kind of moved in to, to claim his spot. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see that. Well, when I used to hunt more, um, throughout the years, I would see, a dominant buck get taken off a of property and then almost like a power struggle, a vacuum and all mm-hmm. these other deer would move into his area and, you know, not necessarily knock down drag out fights, but establish dominance to try to establish dominance over right. one of each other to try to take up his, his area. Cause obviously that mature buck is in the best possible area and, you know, other deer want to live there, but he's kicking them all out. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool to see that and witness something like that happen, whether that's while you're in the tree stand or, or through trail cameras as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think part of the reason that they really like the areas is like I said, I really got that one area very thick with the hinge cutting. And then um, I had a, a good number of does that pretty much call that place home. And I leave them alone. You know, if I'm going to hunt any does, I hunt them usually on the, the very edge of the property or something like that. And I, I don't go into that area. Right. Now, before we started uh, recording, you were talking, we were talking about what, what we wanted to talk about on this podcast. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the hinge cutting and how that, you know, attracted deer to your area. So that's one of the things that contributed to your success. Now, on a small track of land like 14 acres you have to be very careful so you're not blowing deer out burning up the spot because you you don't get very many many chances uh, at a mature buck on 14 acres if you screw up so what were some of the other things that you did that contributed to the success this year so a few things i did you know one um i i think Listening to your podcast and all the all the the new podcasts that you brought in too, I think I really started paying attention to um, a lot of points that they made. And I think in the past, you know, I always I always kind of tried to pay attention to the wind, but you know, if the wind changed or something like that, or it wasn't quite right, and I had a day off, I just was going to go hunting anyway and make the best of it. But this year, I really made a decision that you know, if if the wind wasn't right and I had off, 
I wasn't hunting period. That was it. I either had to find another place, um, or I just wasn't going to go in. And, um, you know, I tried to, to find some areas around the periphery of the property. So whichever way the wind blew, it was going to be blowing it away from the center. And I was going to be shooting more towards into the, the woods and whatnot. Um, you know, so I, I think that's one thing that really Im- improved my chances. And I really kind of searched the edges of the property, tried to find some, some trees, like I said, that would give me um, a place where I could shoot from, from almost, um, you know, any wind direction if possible. And, and then, like I said, if it didn't work out, I just wasn't going to go. The other thing I did, which um, really taught me a lot about deer, and I think really helped me use this property efficiently, is um, I put up a bunch of uh, wireless trail cameras. And, um, you know, the one thing I really like about wireless trail cameras is they, they go off and they will show you exactly what's going on exactly when it happens. Um, you're not going in there, you know, we kind of talked before, you're not going in there and disturbing the area, which is, I think, important too. So some of these are, are literally like on the main deer trails in my woods and things like that. But the other thing is you really get a sense for what's going on. And, and I could literally, I probably, I think I've got six wireless trail cameras in this one tiny section of woods, believe it or not. And I could watch the deer kind of moving back and forth. And, you know, I would get a sense of, okay, the deer are moving today. Why are they moving? Okay, there's a cold front. The wind's coming out of the northwest. This is good. But then there was other days um, when, you know, the deer would be moving and it was a southeast wind. In fact, the second deer I shot, I shot during the southeast wind when it was drizzling out, which was, um, you know, a little odd. I wouldn't have really expected that. And you get a sense of what's making these deer move. You know, which winds are they moving? And when they move, where are they moving? And, you know, what about the weather? And what about the moon phases? And um, interestingly enough, this year I, I, I shot both deer on a near, nearly full moon, and I saw a lot of movement on nearly a full moon. And in the past, I really would never – I wouldn't say I wouldn't hunt full moons, but I always preferred hunting you know, a quarter moon or a half moon on, on either side because I saw better movement um, you know, in, the, in the morning or in the afternoon. This year, I actually, on the full moons, saw a lot more movement in the middle of the day. And I actually gave up hunting in the morning, except on very rare occasion. And the reason why is, is my house sits kind of on the south, on the south side of my property, but otherwise kind of in the middle as far as east and west. And then immediately outside my yard, I've got crops and then the woods are on the far side of that. So anytime I wanted to get to my tree stands, I would have to either find another way around, which I would try to do, or I would have to cross through those fields. So if I was trying to get to a tree stand in the morning, anything in those fields, I was busting out. And even if I tried to go around the fields in the past, when I tried to go around, even if I kind of ducked in kind of in a little drainage ditch and tried to sneak in there, what would end up happening is I I would hear the the deer, you know, likely does just kind of busting out of there. And I kind of learned my lesson. I said, you know what, I'm not going to go out there. If there's a chance I'm going to get busted, I'm going to wait for them to go back to wherever they're going to bed. Then I'm going to go in. And I'm going to wait for them to either do like get up and kind of stretch around and grab a bite to eat around lunchtime or something like that, or come out in the, in the evening time and catch them going from their bedding to the food sources. And I think that really worked well this year. Right. And then, like I said, that in combination with the, with the wireless cameras, one on a day to day basis would tell me what was going on, but two gave me a sense of movement patterns and, there were days that, you know, I would be at work and I would get home and I'd look at my trail camera photos and I'd be like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Like, you know, that deer was sitting underneath my stand all day while I was at work 
and um, and I couldn't do it. And then I'd go out hunting the next day, and of course, didn't see anything. Then the next day when I was back at work, they'd be moving, and eventually I tr- I kind of put all that together, and, and I would wait. And if I was off, I'd wait and see what the deer movement was before I would go out and try to do anything that afternoon. So this this idea of using uh, wireless trail cameras, man, I mean, some guys are for it. Some guys are, are against it. Um, me, you know, I I can't use them on the properties that I hunt for one reason only, and it's because I don't get reception mm-hmm. down in these river bottoms. So, right. So, by default, I can't. You know, like I've tried using them in the past, and then now that that wireless trail camera is just another regular trail camera. But mm-hmm. what I guess what would you say to a guy? who is like, well, you know, using a cell camera takes the sporting out of it. You know, it, it, it depends. And, and I, I think that people that haven't used them are going to tend to have that feeling more so. And you have to understand, it's not like I'm sitting in my office, you know, checking email and, and doing some things. And all of a sudden I've got like a bank of, you know, I don't know. I actually look at my cell phone. So it's not like I'm sitting there in my office, my cell phone starts going off and it's like, okay, that's the one over the Southeast side. I just run out of my office, grab my gun and go down there or grab my bow and go down there. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't really work that way, especially not on 14 acres. Cause you can imagine one, by the time I see the picture, probably that deer's going to be gone. And, and the other thing is, um, you know, you can't really sneak in on a, on a deer that well. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you can't at all, but it's not like you're going to see him over here in this one spot in this one opening and you're going to be able to sneak in there and, and get a shot. Now I will, I will say, and we can talk about it later. The second deer I shot this year, there's a lot of truth like that. And that was a really strange situation that I never expected. Um, so it kind of leaves me with a interesting perspective on things, but I was using my trail cameras more for just getting a sense of, of the movement and what's going on. I never sat in one stand and saw movement on the other side of the farm and said, that's it. I'm getting down and I'm moving over there. Cause again, you're, you're going to kind of spook the deer off. Right. How, how I would vision using it is, you know, let's say you had a hundred or 200 acres and you had, you know, a fair number of cameras out. If you saw that the deer were moving on the Southeast corner of the property, you know, maybe there's in the Southeast corner, maybe there's a cornfield and in the you know Northwest corner, maybe there's a, a soybean field. You see them on the Southeast corner by the corn you go hunt by the corn for a couple of days, but it's, it's a much more general thing like that. It's not like you're getting that Intel right up front where you can just like go sneak right out and shoot that deer. It just, it just doesn't really work that way. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So the buck that you ended up sh- shooting with your bow, uh, and that was in November, right? Yeah. November 4th. Okay. So what was this buck doing? what where was what was his travel pattern kind of like and and then lead that into how you decided to set up and eventually harvest him gotcha so um so so both deer um interestingly enough were like i really played cat and mouse with cat and mouse with uh, both of them for for quite some time for probably a month before i shot each one and um was just trying to make the best use of that time so with the first one, uh, Goofy Horn that I shot, I would literally see him, you know, sometimes in the day, sometimes at night, walking up and down the, the main path through my woods. And, um, you know, could literally see him kind of 
hitting certain cameras. And then if he walked all the way through, he would hit a certain number of cameras, but then occasionally I would lose him. So I couldn't really tell where he was entering and exiting. And, um, and that'll bring up an interesting point, which I'll get, get to a minute as far as um, kind of how you're, you're, you have to keep an open mind because I, I think my mind was kind of closing at, at a time, but I would see him kind of moving. And like I mentioned, I would, I would be at work and, you know, I would get home and I'd check my, my phone and there'd be all kinds of movements. So the next day I'd want to go move out there. And, um, you know, I may not see anything that, that next day. And um, I would go to work the following day and he would move. And it literally was like on a day-to-day basis like that. And I, I noticed his pattern is he would get on the property and he would be pretty constant for like a full day, maybe two days. And then he may be gone for a day or two. Um, but he had to be pretty close by because there was times literally he'd be there at like, you know, noon and, and, you know, he would show up in the mornings, be there through noon, be there through the afternoon, be there in the evening and things like that. So he, he spent a pretty fair amount of time, I think on, on the property doing that. Um, and then I started getting to the point where I was starting to pay attention to, okay, why is he moving on these days? You know, is it the wind? Is it the moon? Is it, so I started actually like kind of, you know, not graphing, but kind of keeping a table of that, of that information. Um, and I, I found a lot of times he was starting to move on, on like, you know, kind of like what we expect, like a North or a Northwest wind or something like that. But a Northwest wind was hard for me to hunt because it blows in such a way down my, my property edge that, the stands I was going to hunt in, that would blow it down into one of the two bedding areas. So it was making it pretty tough. So what happened is the, the day that I decided to, um, to hunt him, I was checking the weather and the weather was going to be, um, Northwest initially. So I couldn't really hunt my property, um, or the main part of my property, but then it was going to start switching around and it was going to switch around to more like out of the Northeast, which would have been perfect. So my plan was I was going to hunt the very, west end of my property where there was a tree I could get into that um, it would not blow the the wind into the bedding area with that northwest wind. But as it switched around, like around 10 o'clock, it was supposed to go more like kind of northeast. Then I was going to get down from that stand because the stand I was going to be in in the morning was going to actually blow into the a different bedding area. And then I would just kind of move over to the main, uh, back over towards the main part of the property. And um, what ended up happening is you know, I was hunting out of that one stand at the west end of the property, and um, I I almost never uh, call and especially don't rattle because I, I just think that the deer, almost in any area now, unless you're really kind of in a remote area, are probably used to hearing that. But um, I decided to give it a, a try because I knew that I saw the deer on the main part of the property the, um, you know, the evening before, just as far as looking at the trail cameras. So I rattled a little bit and grunted. Um, I had a, um, a, like a smaller seven or eight point come in that morning, got some good pictures and, uh, he moved off and then I rattled and, and, um, grunted a little bit later, um, again, had a nice, um, like seven or eight pointer come in and kind of came right to the base of my tree, looked around, um, and then kind of like slowly moved off. And by then it was about nine thirty or so. And I started thinking, you know, the wind's getting ready to change. I, I'm going to have to get down and. I kind of gave it one last swing to my left and my right to, to see if there was any deer. And I looked down on my right and Goofy Horn was literally standing there on the little, on the path that I had walked in about 15 yards from me. Wow. And where he came from, I have no idea. Cause it's just, 
amazing sometimes how deer can sneak in on you and you, you may not even hear them. And, um, he was standing there at about 15 yards, just kind of slowly moving along, kind of, you know, sniffing the ground. Seemed like he was kind of pretty carefree, to be honest with you. He didn't look like he was necessarily look, I'm sure he was looking for does, but he certainly wasn't too terribly excited about it. Didn't seem like he scented me. Um, you know, I, I grabbed my bow and my plan was to, um, you know, move my bow over to the, the right side, but he was so close that I thought that, it, you know, if something happened and I was trying to draw on that right side and move my bow that he might, you know, he might see me and spook. So what I did is I decided to leave the bow on the left side. I kind of crossed my fingers and crossed my toes and, um, and, and just waited. And, you know, he continued down the path. He cleared that tree and I got ready to, to draw, but he was behind a, a kind of a bunch of, like kind of brush and whatnot where there's just a bunch of really small branches and things. And, you know, I didn't want to risk putting a shot through that. Um, and luckily I stayed fairly calm through this whole thing. I don't know how I did or not. Um, and finally I kind of looked around, I saw an opening in the branches and I drew back and I'm like, okay, if he, if he makes it two more feet to that, I'm in good shape. If he turns and goes, um, to his right, which would have been the same direction, the other deer kind of left off to, I was going to be stuck because, I was going to be shooting like directly away from him. And he took two shots forward. Um, you know, I kind of settled the, the, the pin on him and slowly squeezed the trigger and, you know, watched the lighted knock kind of disappear low onto his, into his, the left side of his chest, um, just behind his leg. And, um, yeah, I, I knew it was a good hit. He kicked up his legs and I kind of heard a, a little bit of noise and some rustling the leaves for five or 10 seconds. And then it just got quiet. So I was yeah. pretty excited at that point. I, climbed down as fast as I could. And, uh, instead of going to look for the, the arrow, I, I went home to get my kids cause they were really, really excited cause they've been watching all these deer with me on the trail cameras for, you know, several months and they knew all the deer by names and they could actually pick through it as we were going through the things They're like, Oh, there's goofy horn and there's ace. And, uh, you know, I knew they were going to be really excited and wanted to spend that time with me. So the, the buck that you killed, you call him Goofy Horn. He was, he's the mm -hmm. biggest buck that you've, you've ever killed with a bow. Um, actually I shot a 10.2 years ago that scored a little bit better than him. Um, In but didn't have the mass that, uh, yes. Okay. Okay. All but, right. But, but didn't have the mass that Goofy Horn did. The, the other deer, I think it was a younger deer. I'm going to guess he was probably three and a half years old. Okay. Um, beautiful symmetrical 10 point, but not a lot of mass. This deer had more mass. And my guess is he, he had to be at least four and a half. And, uh, I think the taxidermist thought he might even be five and a half or more. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, Maryland is a two buck state. Is it one with a firearm and one with a bow or is it, uh, any, any weapon two with any weapon? So you can shoot, um, one during archery one during firearm and one during muzzle loader. And they, they have a, um, a special caveat to that, that if you shoot two does, you can actually buy an, an extra buck tag and shoot one additional buck, which is what I was planning on doing, you know, hopefully during bow season or something like that. So you can literally, you could, if you wanted to shoot four bucks, that's yeah. That's my understanding. Okay. I now, don't shoot muzzle loader. I I haven't done that yet, but but I think you could. 
Right. Okay. So what about like you being a landowner? Do you get an extra tag because you're a landowner? I don't, I don't know if you get extra tags. I could get uh, crop damage permits, but those only pertain to, to does is my understanding. Gotcha. And I've never really done it because my property is so small. It's not, it's not that big a deal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So you, you know, you got your kids, you tracked them, you found them. Now you, you just shot a great deer. Now did your mind instantly after that, you know, after that day, did your mind instantly go back to tracking this other deer that was showing up on your farm? Or was it just kind of, uh, uh you put him on the back burner? You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause I actually, every time I shoot a deer, I kind of take little notes and write like a little narrative just so I can kind of remember it or give it to my kids later. And, and, um, I, as I was going through all that, it was, it was, um, it was interesting. First of all, when we found the 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 blood trail it was unbelievable it turns out I actually like literally shot him square through the heart so it looked like somebody had picked up a five gallon bucket of red paint and just had like literally thrown it through the woods um it was which worked out great because my kids and my dog were out following it and we had no problems at all it wasn't like a, a a tough thing i think he went about 60 yards and we found him kind of piled up against a, a stump and um when I saw him, I, I had such mixed feelings because, you know, this is a deer that for two years I had seen him, you know, close to a hundred times on my camera. I, I knew him, you know, by name, I knew him by sight. I kind of, I almost got to feel like, you know, I kind of was a part of him or I understood him and to see him there, you know, I think the first thought in my mind was, damn it, you know, I'm, I'm not going to see this deer on my cameras anymore. That's, that's going to suck. Like, yeah. you know, it was fun. It was like so much fun, like seeing him there. Cause every time I would see it, I would grab my kids and be like, Oh, he's back. Look, he's here today. You know, he's tormenting dad again. My dad was at work, you know, something like that. And, and we would laugh and we'd plan and things like that. And, and it wasn't going to be anymore. And, um, at that time, I, I think that's when my, I started thinking the other deer, I was like, you know what? I wonder if that other deer is going to come back now that this one's gone. And literally about five days later, the other one came back and then he became, the the i guess the dominant or the most the most present um buck on the property and he started playing the same game like i would see him you know multiple times over the course of 24 hours then he'd be gone for another 24 and then he would come back and you know i would be at work and then i would hunt and i wouldn't see anything and you know we kind of went back and forth with that one for a while but uh it was kind of an interesting just just change in i guess emotions with the whole thing Absolutely. Now, the the second buck that you ended up harvesting, did he do anything different or the same that the first buck did? He was literally traveling up and down the main, kind of the main trail. I had cut a main trail through my property that, you know, originally what I had done was put it in there so I could access tree stands and, you know, bring in a feeder or bring in minerals and things like that. And, and I did set up some tree stands along that, but what I found is I think by, by hunting in that center part of the property, I was really screwing myself over. And I think that's why I wasn't seeing many bucks or bucks in the past, but that path still existed and that's what they were primarily using. And, um, it went, it was probably a little bit more to one side of the, the woods than the other. Um, and there was a thicket off to the north side of that trail. And that was the, the two acre hinge cut. 
And then on the um, south side of that, there's a lot of kind of planted pines that have been there for a long time. And there's some kind of scrub brush and, and multiflora rose underneath there. And there was a lot of bedding around there. And then on the outside of that was where the crops were. And um, the, the does would bed in that. The problem I was running it, running into is if I tried to leave the house and go to the stands by crossing that field, there's often does or deer bedded right on the edge of that field, which, which kind of made things really tough for me. Right. But, right. but the, the bucks would cruise up and down that because no matter which way the wind was blowing, they could get a pretty good sense of, of you know, what was going on. And then there was multiple trails that kind of crossed um, the main trail because the main trail went kind of east and west. And there were multiple ones that would go kind of north and south through there and would, um, um, you know, allow them to either exit the property or to check some different bedding areas and whatnot. Okay. So talk, walk us through real quick the, uh, the day that you ended up uh, shooting your second buck with a rifle. Gotcha. So, so what happened is, um, you know, I, I had um, – been watching him kind of back and forth a little bit and, and gun season was, was, um, coming in. I'm, I try to remember the date, but it was sometime, I, I think it was like the weekend after Thanksgiving or, or something like that. And it's in for almost two weeks, I think. And generally I don't pay a lot of attention to it, to be honest with you. I usually try to, I, I use that as a chance to, you know what, I'm not going to hunt at all. And I'm, I'm just going to let everybody else hunt around me and push deer onto my property if, possible and just let it work that way um but what ended up happening is i was out there and i noticed on one edge of my property right outside of my hinge cut right out you know there's some trails coming out of my woods crossing some other um like little hay fields and somebody had put like two big piles of corn right outside literally five feet outside the edge of my property and they were right on the outside of those trails um coming in and on a couple of occasions on some of my trail cameras which are close to the edge of the property I would be able to see people like walking around and um, the, the day that I shot that buck uh, was really weird. And this is why I told you about how the trail cameras, it, it's interesting how they, how they work out. And I could see where they, they could present opportunities that are potentially could, could make things almost unsp- unsportsman. I'll be honest with you. Um, I was sitting in the house. It was, it was raining. It was actually raining you know, pretty hard. So I wasn't planning on going out. I was actually putting up some shelves in my son's room. And, um, as I was, you know, I had my phone in there with me. I was listening to some music and I got a couple of, um, of shots from my trail cameras that came across. And sure enough, it was this deer that we called ACE. And I called him ACE because, um, it's short for asymmetrical for whatever reason, but he had, um, really long tines on his left side, but he had a really short brow tine on his left. And on his right side, early in the season, he had a really long brow tine that was probably at least seven inches, but had shorter um, main tines on his bean. Um, but he looked very wide. He looked like a like a really decent deer. Um, but he broke off the right brow tine, that long brow tine, pretty early in the season. I want to say at the beginning of October, I started seeing him, and he, he no longer had that. Um, but I started seeing pictures of that deer come up on my trail camera. I got like two or three, and... I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, it's, I'll, you know, if I get a chance, I'll have to go either tomorrow or the next day or something. And then all of a sudden I, I heard a shot and I was like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. <laughs> so immediately I, you know, I, and you know, I, although these deer are everybody's deer and nobody would have been doing anything illegal. I mean, still they're, you know, you get to a point, which I know anybody that hunts deer enough, 
you get to a point that they're like, you feel like they're yours. You have time invested in them. You got emotional energy invested in them. And I was pissed and concerned to be honest with you. So I grabbed the rain jacket. I threw on a pair of clothes really fast and I walked down to where I had seen him and I looked and I didn't see him. I didn't see anybody else. And, um, you know, I, I, I saw one of the neighbor's trucks a few hundred yards away and I, this was a guy that I trusted. So I, I kind of walked over and I was like, Hey, did you see or hear anything? Cause I've had some people kind of showing up on my cameras that probably aren't supposed to be there. And, and he said he heard the shot, but he said he didn't see anybody. So we, we talked for a few minutes and, and it was getting pretty dark. I think at this time, I think the end of legal shooting light was like 5:15 on that day, if I remember right. And this had to be about 4:45, so about half an hour beforehand. And we talked for a little bit, and you know, I was probably five or six hundred yards away from my home, so I started, you know, walking back towards the house. And as I did, I I literally kept getting pictures of this deer right on the edge of the woods at that one spot. And I probably got eight pictures. He was just literally standing there. And he would kind of just turn his head one way, turn his hand another way, almost like he was kind of waiting, you know, for for dark or something like that to to get out. And I got back to the house. And as I walked in, I got, you know, one additional picture. And it was probably five minutes to five at that time. And, um, you know, I showed my sons and they're like, Daddy, you got to go out and you got to see if you can get that deer. And I was like, there ain't no way I'm going to get that deer. That's crazy. Like, by the time I get out there, he's going to be gone. I mean, it's it's nearly the end of shooting light. This yeah. this is will never work. Right. And um, and they looked at me. They said, "Dad, you got to go." And I was like, "You know, maybe I should go. If I if I don't go, then I'm I'm just I'm gonna always wonder what if type type thing. You know, you kind of put yourself in that situation. So I went downstairs. You know, literally just threw on a pair of camo jeans real quick and a camo long sleeve shirt. Um, you know, grabbed my rifle and like three cartridges, and that was it. I didn't grab my backpack. I didn't grab any binoculars, like nothing else, because I kind of thought this is ridiculous. This is just never going to happen. And um, I walked down there, walked, you know, right over to, um, you know, close to the edge of my property where I didn't want to get too close. I was probably about 100 yards away from where I thought he was. He was sitting there and um, um, I was looking around. It was really beginning to get dark at this point because it was probably five minutes after five and it was already raining and overcast and all of a sudden I thought I saw some branches like way over this this hill and um I I kind of you know threw my scope up looked and I could see that they were antlers so I started kind of watching and they're kind of slowly heading my way and and then I realized which deer it was because you could literally see it looked like candlesticks on both sides of his head one set a little taller than the other side and um as he crested the hill I think he must have seen me because I was sitting like on the ground at the edge of the woods. And, um, he started heading like straight towards me. Like maybe he thought I was a doe or thought I was something else, you know, you know, something along that line. I, I guess it raises curiosity. And, and then all of a sudden he stopped about a hundred yards and I was kind of looking out through the scope and kind of watching him. And, you know, by, by this point he had crested enough of the hill that I could see what was going on. And, um, I was kind of watching him. I was trying to see if he would come closer I thought maybe I should call, but maybe not. And, and as I kept looking at him, like I could literally see it getting darker by the moment. As I looked through the scope, you know, it was finally at the point where I could see his antlers straight up. I could see the white patch on his throat, but I really couldn't see like much more of the rest of his body. I, I, I figured he probably was facing directly at me, but I couldn't tell very well if he was, if his body was off to the left or, or right either way. 
Um, and, um, you know, I, I kind of decided I had to make up my mind if I'm either going to shoot this deer now while I can see him, because if he moves, it's just going to, there's no way that I'm going to be able to kind of reacquire him in my scope and it's just getting too dark. And it was about, you know, 10 minutes after five at that time, there's only about five minutes left. And, um, you know, I, I kind of decided I could see the front of him enough. I kind of went, I found the white throat patch, went down just about the bottom of it and then slowly squeezed off the trigger. That was it. He just dropped like right there in the spot. Um, you know, and then I ran over, took a look at him and ran back and got my kids again. And, you know, they, they kind of helped me out. They were excited because they heard the shot. They were the ones that kind of instigated me to go out there in the first place. So they were, they were kind of excited about the whole thing. And, uh, you know, they went out, we got some more pictures and took him home and got him taken care of, uh, you know, that night. So it was, Man. it was pretty awesome. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's like I said, I, I never in my life thought that that would have worked out that way. But, but that was the only case where I actually saw a deer in a camera and went out and actually was able to make something work. One, you know, probably if that happened on a regular basis, then I would agree it's not very sportsmanlike. But I also think it's a very rare situation. And I don't think that's something that really would happen either on a small property like mine or on a big property very often. Because I literally, I had... I'd have to go back through things, but I want to say it was 30 or 45 minutes pictures of this deer standing by this one camera for that time. And I don't think that happens very often. I mean, typically deer are going to move around a lot more. You're just not going to get that kind of opportunity. Right. Right. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, but, uh, I tell you what, congratulations on having such a, an awesome year Two two really good deer, uh, in, in Maryland. And the cool thing is, is it's on your property. Uh, and I, I have a, I have a feeling that that makes it that much better when it's on property that you own. It does. I mean, I, you know, it, it really, really makes it special. I, you know, a couple of deer I shot out in Illinois are, are bigger than these two deer, but these are really nice deer for the area. And, and the fact that I started with, you know, small deer where I was happy to be seeing little tiny six points and, you know, finally got, got these two deer this year. I mean, you know, really makes me happy. It makes me proud. Gives me something to do with the kids because, you know, they helped me get out and put in the food plots in the summertime and plant some trees and do some things like that. And, uh, you know, my, my, um, my oldest, who's getting ready to turn eight in a couple of weeks, um, you know, he's dying to go out there with me and he's, he's been out there a couple of times and, you know, I got him a crossbow that he can use. So this year he's got an, an apprentice hunting license, which allows him to hunt with me. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. So he's getting into that. He's helped me clean these deer and he's already talking about, you know, dad, let's go take a trip out to Ohio and, and go hunt some like public land or let's go lease some, some land somewhere. And, uh, I'm kind of glad to see the, the excitement kind of welling up in his eyes. Cool. Well, you've probably created a monster, but, uh, I tell you what, man, congratulations again. Um, Sounds like you have uh, potential for maybe uh, another deer this year, but uh, regardless, you've uh, you've already been successful this year. And I know, Mike, uh, as we start getting away from the hunting season and we start thinking about gear more, we're going to have to get you on again and uh, uh, talk about some gear, uh, some some, uh, bow hunting uh, equipment. And uh, until then, man, uh, congrats again. I, I appreciate it. And 
I think I'm going to try to get in touch with the guys from uh, Land and Legacy too, and you know, see if they're willing to maybe take a look at some some aerial photos of my property and see if I can get some advice from them, or see if I can get them to come up and take a look because they've got some uh, you know some great ideas and. Uh, you know, as, as good as my property is, I, I've got a couple of ideas, and I'm sure they could come up with even some more ideas. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Dr. Mike for coming on the podcast and sharing his success story with us today. Huge shout out to each and every one of you for taking time to download. Please subscribe to this podcast, and you get everything all in one. The Nine Finger Chronicles podcast the DIY Sportsman's Podcast, the Transition Wild Podcast, and the Land and Legacy Podcast. And I tell you what, I'm working on getting more podcasts for you. Not necessarily on this feed, but uh, I'm going to probably start to open up other feeds as well. And that includes Western-themed podcasts, waterfowl-themed podcasts, and fishing-themed podcasts as well. So if you or you know someone who is interested in starting a podcast whether that is a uh, a western you live out west and you want to hunt western game uh, you're an avid waterfowl or an avid fisherman hit me up i'd love to talk with you about uh, getting all that started and, and being a content provider for the uh, for sportsman's nation Hit me up if that's uh, something you want to do. Huge shout out to all of the partners of this podcast. Wasp, Ozonics, Deer Lab, Exodus, Lone Wolf, Gearhead, Ripcord, and last but not least, Bighorn Outfitters. Please, with this Christmas season uh, coming, it's already here basically because everywhere I go I hear Christmas music. Please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast I would really appreciate it. And hell, they're all really good products. So uh, take that in, into consideration as well. Uh, go to Nine Finger Chronicles on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, make sure you like that. Go to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on Instagram and Facebook and make sure you like that as well. A lot more content coming down the rest of this year and for sure the beginning of 2018. Uh, I got the ATA show coming up in early January, mid, early mid-January, uh, and who knows who I'm going to get on the uh, mic then. Other than that, guys, uh, if you are going to go out and you are going to go hunting, please wear your damn safety harness.